So mornings like this, uh, you don't have to question or wonder why Jesus loved children so much, right? <laughs> We're going to be uh, starting this morning in the book of Luke, chapter 4. And we're going to start our reading on ver- at verse 14. Luke chapter 4, and starting with verse 14. Luke writes, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know, we have been looking at portraits of Jesus that we find in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We started two weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 7, where we saw Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, the incarnation of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, taking on humanity and being born as a baby. Then last week we were in Isaiah 52 and 53, where he takes us to the cross. And we see Jesus as the suffering Messiah, who died to pay the penalty for our sins, and then rose from the dead and is now in a place of glory and honor. Well, this week we're kind of hitting in between. This week we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 61, and we're going to see this portrait of Jesus in terms of his ministry, especially the heart of Jesus during his ministry. And we'll get there in a minute, but we're going to stay here in Luke chapter 4 for just a little while before we go over to, or back to, I should say, to the book of Isaiah. Here in uh, Nazareth, in uh, Luke chapter 4, it's been about a year since the people of Nazareth have seen Jesus. Now, his mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, had been born and raised all their lives in the little town of Nazareth. They'd gotten married under very questionable circumstances. While they were engaged, but had not yet come together as man and wife in marriage, Mary was found to be pregnant. Now, within that culture, she and Joseph did make it right, if you will, and they officially got married, and they um, established a household. But things like that were not forgotten in a little town like Nazareth. And in fact, over the years, there had been this whispering as to who was the real father of Jesus, because there was some question that it was Joseph at all. Jesus and his parents had moved back to Nazareth when Jesus was between the age of two and three. And so the townsmen people have been able to watch him grow up. And in Luke chapter 2, we know that they came to the conclusion that he was a fine boy. And then they also came to the conclusion that he was a godly young man as he got into adulthood. And then after all these years of Jesus being there and practicing the carpentry trade of his dad, Joseph, 
he and about four or five other men had left to go down to Jerusalem to go to the Passover. While he was there, Jesus had cleared the temple market and he had begun to his teaching ministry in the temples of the court. After the Passover was over, Jesus and his disciples had stayed there in Judea and they had where he had done ministry for about six months. And then he had come up through the territory of Samaria where he met with the Samaritan woman at a well and spent about a week in Samaria. And then he crossed the border into southern Galilee. And village by village, Jesus has been making his way through Galilee. And he's teaching, he's preaching, and he's healing people. And now, after 10 months of all of this, then now Jesus and his band of brothers, they come back to Nazareth. And the hometown boy has come and paid them a visit. Now, the townspeople of Nazareth had heard all about this. The stories about Jesus were already circulating throughout the nation of Israel. They heard about his teaching. They heard about the temple. They heard about his miracles. And they're excited because now they get to see Jesus and hopefully some of these miracles close up. The Sabbath comes and Jesus joins them at the local synagogue. Saturday morning, Jesus walks in. And this is a little building that he had spent all of his childhood and adulthood going to worship every Sabbath. All the people are familiar to him. He knows every single one of them by name. But now Jesus himself is the focus of attention. You can kind of see the eyes glued on him as he comes walking in and he goes right up to the front with the other leading men of the synagogue and he takes his place. As the service begins, the voice of Jesus is mixing in with all the rest. It was probably a typical Sabbath worship service. They opened, it was an opening prayer, and then they had all stated the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, as they said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You have to wonder, what is Jesus thinking as he's saying these words? Because he's got a very different relationship with Yahweh God than the rest of the people there do. Then there's a series of prayers where each request is set out by somebody standing up front. And at the end of each request, the congregation would go, Amen. The next request, Amen. And they had a, series, had a time of prayer. Then they read a passage out of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. Then they read some of the Psalms as a form of worship. And then they came to the primary passage of Scripture for that morning. After that was read, someone stood up and had a short sermon or time of teaching on that particular passage. There was no leading rabbi or no pastor, if you will, of the local synagogue. All the leading men of the synagogue took turns each week, and one of them getting up and giving that Bible teaching. Then there was a benediction as number six was uh, prayed over them, and then they all went home. Now, it's not uncommon if there was a visiting rabbi that happened to be in the synagogue on that particular Sabbath that he would be invited to come up and to deliver the message on that morning's sermon, on that morning's passage. And so that's exactly what they do with Jesus. And you notice that it says that he stood up to read the Scriptures because in honor of God's Word, you stood when you read the Scripture. So they hand Jesus the scroll of Isaiah. He takes that. He turns it to Isaiah 61. 
And he reads the passage that you see here. Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. And then he goes on. And what he's reading is Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and half of verse 2. And then he stops. Now, unlike in our tradition here, as I'm standing here in the Jewish tradition, the teacher sat down. And so Jesus sits down, and you can sense that Luke even paints this picture. There's a moment of silence. Everybody's looking at him. Because as we're going to see this morning, this is a very well-known passage. And then Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He goes on to explain why that's true. Luke doesn't give us the details of what Jesus said that morning, but he does say that Jesus began by saying these words. And so that means that there were things Jesus said afterwards. And I am confident that what Jesus did was explain why he was the fulfillment of this passage. Now, the people's response goes from favorable to skeptical to rejection in just a few minutes. In verse 22, it says that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And so as Jesus starts, they're going, wow, this guy is good. There was a graciousness. There was a power. There was an authority in what Jesus was saying. But then they become skeptical. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? As they realize that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, they go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We know who this guy is. He's just a humble carpenter, the son of a humble carpenter of an obscure village. What does he mean he's Messiah? And then as Jesus proceeds to continue to teach them, they go to flat-out rejection. In verse 28, it says that all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, these words that Jesus said. And they got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They have become an unruly mob trying to kill Jesus because the cliff outside of Jerusalem is about a 40-foot drop. So they're not just escorting him out of town. They're trying to kill him. So in the course of just a few minutes, as Jesus is teaching, as Jesus is explaining who he is, as he's claiming to be the fulfillment of the arrival of the Messiah, they go from favorable to skeptical, finally to rejection, to the point to where they want to murder him. And you have to say, is it something Jesus said? <laughs> you know, what did Jesus say that brought about this hysterical and harsh reaction? Well, you need to go to Isaiah 61 and look at the passage and understand what Jesus was saying and what he was teaching. And so now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 61, and we're going to look at these verses that Jesus read to them and explained to them on that Sabbath morning. Isaiah chapter 61 and verses 1 and 2. It says, as we've pretty much what we've already heard out of Luke, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the day of vengeance of our God to all of our God to comfort all who mourn and then the and then Isaiah continues to go Jesus stopped halfway through verse 2 and we're going to see in a moment why he does that 
Now, as we get into Isaiah, one of the things that are important to understand is that Isaiah is indeed talking about the Messiah. He's talking about that Savior who was going to come and rescue the nation of Israel. And we understand, including out of the Old Testament, that the Messiah was also going to come to bring salvation to the world. But the Jews are focused on what the Messiah is going to do, particularly for them. The people of Jesus' day know that this is talking about the Messiah. It was fully accepted that these verses are talking about the Messiah. In fact, they're very excited to see these verses fulfilled. 100 years of harsh rule of the Romans over them had brought them to a place that they were absolutely desirous to see Messiah come and provide a deliverance and reestablish them as an independent kingdom with the Messiah himself ruling over them. So they're, they're looking forward to this. And Isaiah 61 tells us two things about the Messiah. First, they, he says that the Messiah is going to bring good news that will free and transform people. He's going to bring good news that will free and transform people. That is, he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The second thing that Isaiah says about Messiah here is that he will execute the judgment of God on the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel and will establish the kingdom. And the second half of verse 2 is the day of vengeance of our God. And the transition point here is indeed verse 2. Now, the anticipation of the Jews is that the Messiah would come and accomplish both of these things at the same time. As we saw last week, they did not see the possibility that you have one Messiah who comes not once but twice. Once to bring the good news that sets people free and, and transforms them, and a second time to execute the judgment of God and establish a kingdom. And that's why Jesus stops midway through this verse. You see, Jesus Christ wants them to understand that he had come the first time in order to free them and transform them. But he had not yet come to execute the judgment of God and establish the kingdom. That will take place when Jesus comes back. And so to the surprise of the people, rather than get to the good part, the part of judgment and Kingdom building, he stops sure to that. That's because Jesus is saying, I've come to bring the good news, but I've not yet come to bring God's judgment. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 are going to reveal for us the heart of God. The heart of God for us, the heart of God for all people, the heart of Jesus and throughout his three-year ministry. And here's what we're going to discover. Jesus Christ brought the good news of God's love and hope. Jesus Christ brought the good news of God's compassion and healing. Jesus Christ came and gave us the message of freedom from sin. And Jesus Christ brought the message that we can know and experience God's best for us, known as God's blessing. And that's the good news of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
is a message of God's love, a message of God's hope, a message of God's compassion, a message of God's healing, a message of God's freedom, and a message of God's blessing. And so let's walk through what this says to us about Jesus Christ. And the first thing is Jesus was commissioned and empowered by God himself. As Jesus came on that first Christmas, he had a commission and he had empowerment that came from God himself. He says in verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. Jesus Christ was empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, he says, is on me. And here we have the mystery of the Incarnation. We have the mystery of the fact that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man at the same time. When Jesus Christ lived his earthly ministry, he lived it as a man. He lived it as a man. He lived it without sin, but he lived it within his humanity. And so, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus Christ received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, it says that as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Holy Spirit, indeed, is on Jesus. Throughout his ministry, then, Jesus said exactly what the Father wanted him to say. He himself said in John chapter 12, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father told me to say. Jesus Christ did what the Father directed him to do. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. See, Jesus Christ had to live his life out in his relationship with the Father exactly like you and I do. Jesus Christ lived a life of knowing and obeying the word of God and of seeking the guidance and empowerment of God, and he did it every single morning in prayer, according to Luke. Jesus Christ received the guidance and the wisdom he needed each and every day, and he did it through prayer. And so he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. His life stands as a model for us of how we can consistently walk with God. And he was commissioned by God for his mercy. He says that the Lord has anointed me. To be anointed simply means to be set apart for a particular ministry or mission. Jesus taught and ministered with the authority of God the Father himself. That's why he said at the end of his ministry in John 17, he was, as he is praying to the Father in the upper room, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And so Jesus Christ was commissioned and empowered by God. 
And he used that commission and he in, in anointing and he used that empowerment from the Lord to bring spiritual life, healing, and freedom. He brought spiritual life, he brought healing, and he brought freedom. He goes on and says that the, that he, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus came to preach the good news of salvation. He came to preach the good news of salvation. Now, good news is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word euangelio. All right. That word is translated gospel throughout the New Testament. And it's also the word that we get evangelism from. To say that we need to evangelize is to say we share good news. And that idea of good news in the Hebrew means it's news that brings the heart joy and hope. Good news brings joy and hope. And he came to deliver that to the poor. The word poor here is um, interesting because there were two words for poor. If you are talking about the poor in the Hebrew society, there was one word that referred to the working poor, the kind of the paycheck to paycheck people, you know, meal to meal. That's not the word that's used here. This word refers to someone who's destitute. This is someone who lacks the basic needs of life, like food and clothing and shelter. They've got nothing. And they have no way and no means to meet these needs themselves. And so these are the poor folk that ended up begging. Sometimes if they were in good health, they would actually indenture themselves or give themselves over to a wealthy landowner as an indentured servant. It was one step away from slavery itself. And what it was is you signed a contract saying, I will serve this master for room and board. And the parable of the uh, prodigal son, that's what the prodigal son tries to do, is when it says he hired himself out. He was just trying to find some farmer that would bring him into the household to work for him just for room and board. And what Jesus is saying here is that we are spiritually it's not talking about physical poverty here he's talking about spiritual poverty and he's pointing out that every human being is spiritually destitute when it comes to us being able to bring ourselves into a relationship with God we can't do it we can't do it we are unable to free ourselves from the effect of sin. We are unable to free ourselves from the consequence of sin. And the greatest consequence of sin is that it has left us separated from God. And there is nothing we can do to bridge that separation. And so the good news that Jesus has is he did it for us. He did it for us. The only way that an indentured servant could gain their freedom was by paying what was called the, the, the uh, redemption price. Very few ever could accumulate the money to do it. That's why when we talk about Jesus Christ redeeming us, he paid the price for us. He paid the penalty for sin. He meant the redemption cost 
And because of that, as we put faith in him, that gap between us and God is bridged and we are brought back into the relationship with our creator God that he wanted us to have from the beginning, but that sin fractured. It's why either Jesus or the apostle John says in John chapter 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The good news is the declaration of God's love and God's hope that we can experience in Jesus Christ. Jesus, secondly, came to bring healing for broken lives. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. Isaiah says he came to to bind up the brokenhearted. To bind up means to soothe, heal, or restore something that is broken or ill. But the idea that's in the phrase here is that somebody comes and gives personal attention to meeting the need. Someone reaches out. Someone extends themselves in order to bring soothing or healing. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. He brings God's presence into our lives. He brings God's grace into our lives. And it is the presence and grace of God that heals We do not know about the love and grace and hope of God because circumstances seem to indicate that he's there. Because sometimes circumstances, it almost feels like he's not. The love and hope and grace of God is true because it's true. And God meets us in our brokenness. And he brings healing. He has brought spiritual healing through the cross and that that fracture and that separation we had from God. He has brought us whole. He's made us complete, if you will. He's brought that relationship back to what it was intended to be. He He brings healing emotionally because there are times when life breaks us. And his healing comes in and he says, I can give you my peace, joy, and hope. He comes into our lives sometimes physically, and he does bring healing. But even as we go through, if it's nothing more than just the aging process, if not some disease that strikes us that we are dealing with, we have the hope that there are glorified bodies we will have in heaven that are free from all the effects of sin. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, and so don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. We all have fear. We all have anxiety. We all have disappointments. We all have times in which life does seem broken, but Jesus is saying not don't have the feelings. He says don't give in to them, but allow me to bring my peace in their place. He also went on to say in the upper room, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy complete. It echoes the words of the psalmist in Psalm thirty-four, eighteen, where it says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, I think it's 
very interesting and very important to note that Jesus used the majority of his miracles to meet the needs of people. It would have been just as fantastic if Jesus would have moved the Mount of Olives from the east side of Jerusalem to the west side of Jerusalem, and he could have done that. He could have parted the Mediterranean Sea if he wanted to. But he was wanting to do so much more than just demonstrate power. And so almost every single miracle of Jesus met a material, physical, spiritual, or emotional need of somebody. He brought healing. Because when he met a need in the material world, it's an illustration of the love and compassion of Jesus Christ in our spirit as well, in our spiritual lives. And so Jesus came to bring healing for broken lives. Jesus came to bring spiritual freedom from sin and its consequences. Freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. The picture Isaiah has got here is that you and I are shackled in the deepest dungeon of a prison someplace where there is no light, just darkness. And we are there. We, we are held to that wall, and there is nothing we can do about it. And Jesus Christ has come down into the pit of that prison through his death on the cross. And he is, by paying that penalty for our sin, he has removed the shackles. He takes us by the hands. He leads us out of the darkness and into the light of freedom in him. He has set us free. And then as we start to live our lives with him, he begins to set us free from not only that ultimate effect of sin, but also from the power of sin or the effect of sin in our lives here. He begins to transform us. He begins to change us. And so he can give us freedom from a, simple hab- from a sinful habit that has us cr- in its grip. He can set us free from emotional patterns and, or from thought patterns that are destructive to us and destructive to others as in our relationships with them. He can take those things and he can say, I will replace that with my righteousness, with my joy, and with my peace. He sets us free. Jesus did that with the demonic in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, that's the guy that's possessed by hundreds of, of demons. Emotionally and spiritually in absolute turmoil and torment. Physically trying to harm himself. Outside the city in the tombs. And Jesus comes and he casts those demons out. And it says that when the townspeople came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Jesus set him free. Jesus did the same for the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. Paul was the enemy of the church and the persecutor of the church. He's going from Jerusalem to Damascus to extend that persecution there. And Jesus meets him on that road in his glory and brilliance. And he knocks Paul right off his horse. And he brings Paul to the point where he puts saving faith in Jesus. Paul ends up in Damascus. He's been blinded. And God is going to send a man by the name of Ananias to help him. And he says to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show them how much you must suffer for my name. 
gloriously slaved and transformed from the great persecutor of the church to the greatest missionary in the history of the church by the touch of Jesus. Last month, the brother who travels abroad was with us. And he gave us the story of the gentleman who had been a member of the mafia in Europe. A man that was uh, an uh, enforcer, so he had the blood of dozens of men on his hands. Through our brother, he came to know, this gentleman came to know Jesus Christ, and Christ completely transformed his life, and he is now a key part of our brother's ministry to refugees in Eastern Europe. That's the transforming power, but also the freedom that Jesus Christ has come to give us. And it's all summarized up in the phrase that he has come in the first half of verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a reference to the Jewish year of Jubilee. In the Old Testament law, God had told the Jews that every 50 years they were to declare a Jubilee as a nation and it was a time when people were able to get a reset on life. Every family had received a parcel of land when Israel came into Palestine under Joshua. And on the year of Jubilee, all of that land that had ever been, that was sold for any reason or had been seized to pay somebody's debts, that land was to revert back to the original family. That's why you really, under the law, you didn't sell land in the nation of Israel, you leased it. Because the value of the land was contingent on how many years to the next Jubilee. Because that's the number of years you had to use it. At the end of that time, you gave it back for free. And so the closer to Jubilee you were, the less the land was worth. It was also a time that if you had sold yourself to be one of those indentured servants, you were set free even though you were unable to pay your redemption price. The primary purpose of the year of Jubilee is to provide a way for the poor to be given a second chance. Unfortunately, there's nothing in the Bible or Jewish history that indicates the nation of Israel ever observed it, ever did it. A display of selfishness and the wealthy taking advantage of the poor, and it's one of the reasons God will bring judgment on the nation of Israel. Through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we experience jubilee. We experience jubilee. We experience our spiritual debts being paid for, and we experience the relationship with God restored. So in some fashion, not recorded by Luke, Jesus explained all of this to the people that are gathered in that synagogue in Nazareth on that Sabbath morning. Jesus says, I am the good news from the Father. I am Messiah. I have come to save you and transform you from sin and separation to forgiveness and restoration. And so why do they reject him? quite easy, really. It's because they refuse to acknowledge their spiritual need. 
See, they're ready for the Messiah to come, but they want the Messiah to come to judge their enemies and establish his kingdom. And they recognize that when Jesus stops before them, what he is saying to them is they are spiritually destitute. They are spiritually broken. They are captive to sin and they are in need of being saved. And in their own eyes, they are faithful Jews and need a deliverance from Rome, not from their sin. And so with anger and self-righteousness, they reject the message. People have a tendency to do that sometimes today too. And having rejected the message, they proceed to shoot the messenger. You know, one of the best ways to justify ignoring truth is by discrediting the one sharing it. Because then you put the attention on that person and you can back away from the truth and not do anything with it. And that's what they're doing here. It's one of the reasons why, as witnesses for Jesus Christ, our lives need to line up with our message so that we don't validate people's rejection. You know, as a believer, as we close here this morning, this week is a great time for us to pause and to really reflect on this wonderful salvation we've been given. We have received God's love, God's hope, God's compassion, God's healing, God's freedom, and God's blessing through Christ. And it's a great time to just stop and go, wow. And just worship the Lord with gratitude for what we have in Christ. And then to look out onto a world that every day seems to indicate is more and more broken. And remember that what the world needs around us is a person. They need Jesus. That's it. Because nothing else brings healing from the brokenness caused by sin. And to pray for that people to come to know Jesus and to be ready to present the gospel. First, by looking for ways that show God's love in tangible ways, just like Jesus did with his healing. And then as God opens the opportunity to share the gospel. When Katrina hit in 2005, um, our pastor was a type of let's go do something type of guy. So we found ourselves in the Gulf Coast eight days after Katrina. Um, devastation beyond belief. Think Gaza. That's what the coast looked like. And so we set, met a pastor there. We got hooked up with the church. And so we began going down every year, every January, starting in January 2006, a few months later, we took a trailer of materials and a bunch of guys who knew what they were doing, and we did rebuilding down there in the Gulf Coast. And we did that for five years, every January. One of the ladies that we had the opportunity to rebuild her house, her name was Connie. And um, we had the opportunity to do the finishing stage on her house. It usually took multiple groups to get a house completely done. And so we had the opportunity to buy her appliances and haul them over and set those up for her. And we put trim up and we did all those finishing touches. It was a lot of fun. And Connie was talking on the porch with one of our gentlemen. His name is Mike. And 
Mike found himself in a position where he began to share the gospel with her. Now, it wasn't the first time, I'm sure, Connie had heard somebody try to share the gospel with her in the months that people had been helping her with her home. But I'll never forget what she said because I was standing right in front of the deck where they were talking and there was another guy and I talking and when we realized, we just made eye contact and we went to prayer. But I could still hear what was going on and she said, if Jesus loved me enough to send you to rebuild my house, I want him in my life. That's what we're talking about. Being able to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ so we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ for the message it is. It's a message of love. It's a message of hope. It's a message of compassion. It's a message of freedom. It's a message of blessing. Our world desperately needs Jesus. Let's praise the Lord for the relationship that we have, if you have. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, I'd encourage you to make that decision. And if you're not sure how, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. But let's rejoice in Christ and then share Jesus Christ with our lives. And make it a truly Merry Christmas. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do pause and we do thank you for all that Isaiah has revealed about Jesus Christ, for his heart, your heart for us. We pray now that this might be a week as we approach Christmas weekend that we would just refresh our own souls and hearts with the truth of the beauty and the wonder of Jesus and the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. And then be ready to make 2024 a year that in more and more effective ways, we reach out with the love of Jesus and with the message of Jesus to the world around us. And it's in the name of Jesus that together we pray. And the family of God together says, Amen. Amen.